Welcome and welcome back, everybody. Welcome to group. Today is Monday, and I hope that your Monday is going well. Uh, I'm just now winding down for my day. So my Monday is still Monday in. Uh, If you hear Kodak in the background, you know he is liable to do the most, even though I request of him every day that he does only the medium amount. He persists to do the absolute most. But um, anyway, have you ever felt like things come into your life, maybe even in abundance, and then you just wind up feeling empty eventually? Like, do you are you a type of person that you feel almost jinxed? Like you feel like you can't really bask in the glory of what you have or you can't really celebrate those good moments because you're waiting for the other foot to drop? Well, if you're that kind of a person and you're dealing with those types of emotions, then this episode is definitely for you. We're going to be talking about a little bit of where that comes from, and we're going to talk about how we can take some steps to avoid that from happening, both the feeling of the other foot being being on this verge of dropping and losing the things that we have in our lives. Um, Very similar to some of the episodes that we just recently did if you haven't go back and listen to a couple of them we are going to dive in today about our relationship with stuff and how stuff was taught to us this episode is going to be very reminiscent of the um, episode on forgiveness where we talked about how it can be really difficult to accept apologies when we have been basically handed empty apologies all our lives and you know been taught to kind of just accept non-genuine apologies and so as we get older we struggle with forgiveness so this is going to be really similar to that so if you are um you know if this if this connects with you I hope that this episode resonates with you before we jump in hold on Kodak I know you doing the absolute most Y'all, I came home from work and I let him out and, you know, let him do his thing because he has a lot of energy. I have a Jack Russell Terrier and they are like the fifth most hyper active dog breeds. I had no idea, y'all. I just thought it was cute. and <laughs> I just got it. Um, But yeah, so he is waiting for his energy outburst. But I told him he has to chill out. I gave him some food. Gave him a little snack, gave him a little playtime, and I told him he had to chill until after I finished recording, and he knows the deal. So I don't know why he's over there making all of that noise unnecessarily. But anyway, if you haven't already, go ahead and check me out on Instagram. That's going to be at Robert St. Michael. You're going to spell the whole thing out. R-O-B-E-R-T-S-A-I-N-T-M-I-C-H-A-E-L. That is my social media. That's where I post all of my updates to uh, our episodes. That's where I post questions of topics that you guys might want to talk about. And I also keep you guys updated to the other like little projects and things that I do. I do a lot of philanthropy work. Um, I offer counseling sessions to people in the United States. So if you're interested in any of that, hit me up on Instagram or you can check out robertstmichael.com for more information. Also, there's going to be some pretty cool things coming to the website this summer. Um, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but I'm working on some things, okay? I'm working on some things, all right? We're trying to take this international, okay? <laughs> we trying to we trying to uplift the world, 
All right. Um, but yeah, keep up. And so that you'll be up to speed with everything that's going on with the brand. Um, so yeah, let's, let's, let's go ahead and jump into today's topic. So I was just now listening on my way home. I was listening to, um, an interview with Michelle Williams and, um, this Instagram influencer called the bougie banker. And, um, they were talking about something that I have been having conversations with my clients about for months at this point, but they were talking about it in the context of money. And one of the things that were brought to light was that people that have a problem with keeping or growing or investing or saving their money typically has a bad relationship with money. Like money was taught to them from a, um, uh, what, what, what's a good word to say? It wasn't taught to them from a perspective of abundance. It was taught to them from a perspective of scarcity. And so that got me thinking, you know, as a counselor and as a mental health professional, I was thinking to myself like, okay, well, what also is interesting is that we know that there's a correlation between trauma, trauma settings and poverty um, and so when we look at those things together, we see that when it comes to trauma, stress, and anxiety, money plays a really big part in that. And I don't mean just like you're stressed because you don't have any money or you're living check to check or you're between checks or those are situations that cause, um, more of a like immediate, like in a, like an immediate you know, um, but I'm talking about, think about this. Think about all of the things that you've been through in your life, any way that you've been mistreated, all of the things that you did not have. Think about that for a second. And now think about if you and your family and the people around you had an abundance of money and you know what that's not fair that's not entirely fair because people who have a lot of money can also be subject to um abuse negligence trauma so I don't I don't want to put that narrative out there so that's a bad way of explaining that but what I will say is that there's something significant about the competition of resources that does set a unique stage for trauma, neglect, abuse, etc. Um, we know that there's a type of com- there's a type of trauma called complex trauma, and that's essentially the trauma that you think is normal. It's the trauma that you think is every day. So if you've ever grown up missing meals, or if you've had children and you had to miss meals to make sure that they ate. Um, There's an entire mindset and lifestyle that goes around that. And so we indoctrinate that in the way that we live. And therefore, our children learn to indoctrinate that as they grow up as well. And that while I'm not saying that that is the most significant trauma, what I am saying is that along with the lifestyle of being deprived, there comes a lot of certain sacrifices, a lot of adjustments that take place that sets the stage and sets the environment for trauma to grow. Now there's two 
aspects of this that I really want to zero in on. I want to talk first about the environmental impact, but I also want to talk about the, um, I don't, I guess it's a psychosocial impact aside from it. The, the first impact I'll say is the environmental impact. So an example of that is like, um, one, one single parent household with multiple children, um, that one parent has to work to provide for these children. Um, so the offset is that the parent who's working extra hard to provide for the children, the children might not see as much of that, their parent as they would, that as they should, you know? And so that leaves them feeling isolated, disconnected, um, not properly bonded. And again, this is not, I'm not throwing shots at anybody because at the end of the day, you got to do what you got to do. You know, we're, we're, we're products of imperfect circumstances and we make the best of it. Um, but when we don't have the time to give our children the attention that they need because we have to work to provide, right? And so they're being left at home. You know, they're being left with other people to watch them. They're being not properly supervised. They're dealing with emotions of loneliness, abandonment. They're dealing with emotions of not feeling close to anybody. Um, They're dealing with the emotions of not feeling protected by their guardian because that person is not around. And so when we start to play into this colorful arrangement of um, potential problematic circumstances, um, you know, when things happen, they often will go unchecked in this type of an environment, you know? Uh, So that can be anything between abusive interactions to neglectful interactions, you know, um, to, to traumatic accidents, to, you know, it just, just so much can happen with the simple lack of supervision, um, the simple lack of parental, uh, closeness due to that parent having to constantly work. And this is just one very small example that I want to show you guys how money (laughs) being the root of this problem how money can offer itself to set the stage for um, unhealthy patterns of behavior to take place. And now, so when we take, and this is just the environmental setting, the setting conditions, if you will, when we take that child who grew up with an absentee single parent who was constantly being, you know, pushed around on other people to be babysat, Um, who once they became like 10 or 11 years old, they were deemed old enough to babysit their siblings because that was obviously a cheaper alternative than hiring someone to watch all of the other kids. And now you have this kid playing adult and playing parent at like 13 or 14 years old without the actual bonded connectedness of what a child typically would need and now we're into the psychosocial aspect of it right now we have um 
a developed young adult with a lot of voids, a lot of unrequited um, emptiness, if you will. It's a lot of feelings of not being enough due to not being seen or recognized enough. There's a lot of pressure of being responsible for someone else or being a part of the solution in your entire household, not necessarily having your own individual identity. If you are not necessarily bonding and connecting with your parents, you're probably not seeing your parents in other healthy relationships. So that may not have been demonstrated to you. So we're now looking at a 13-year-old who has a lot of adult experience, but stuck in a a, a, a cycle of five-year-old emotions that were never paid attention to. And you see where we... You see where we're going with this. So this is a this is a very small example, again, because I'm just speaking of one particular um, combination of circumstances when it comes to competition of resources, when it's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to feed myself. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my rent. I don't know if I'm when you don't ha- when that financial security is not a part of your life striving to achieve that financial security against unrealistic obstacles create stressful environments that can scar yourself and the people in your life if if there are children involved you know that that can be the case and so what happens is that along with the misrepute the misrepresentation of navigating your emotional system and your association with certain themes like associating your free time with having to take care of a child or associating your idea of mothering to working hard to make sure a child has what they need in terms of bare necessities. And in addition to that understanding is your relationship with money, right? Because money is also a driving force in this dynamic. So your understanding of what money is, how important it is, how to go about having it, what it should be spent on, how fast it should be spent, how quickly it can like leave you, all of those things play a very important part in how you eventually handle money. Um, I will tell you from experience... <laughs> Being a person that grew up in poverty, I had a relationship with money that when you have it, you need to spend it before it, before someone takes it from you. Um, That was my general understanding. Make money really fast, spend it fast, but make more money faster and then spend that faster and then make more money faster. Um. Because there was always this standard expectation of being poor. There was always this standard expectation that either you're going to, like, you're going to eventually hit the bottom at some point. So if you have something, you should enjoy it while you have it because it's not going to be here for long. And of course, that type of an understanding does not fare well with how you should handle money as an adult. It does not play well with that, but that is an understanding that a lot of people share growing up in circumstances where 
they're used to having things taken away from them. And it, and I'll say this episode is not about money, but I want to just kind of bring this analogy full circle for you guys. Our relationship with money is more than just what we do with what, what we do with it when we have it. It's also what we want to do with it when we don't have it. It's how we think about getting it. It's how we feel when we have it. Does money make you change? Does money pull you out of a depression? And should it pull you out of a depression? Can money buy happiness in your life? As bad as we would like to say money doesn't buy happiness, for a lot of people, it does. For a lot of people, happiness is simply having a place to live or having a meal to eat today or um, being able to your mom being able to take the weekend off and you actually being able to be with her for a weekend. You know, a lot of people, the happiness bar is set so low because their environmental circumstances have made this sadness very normal. So that's the honest question to ask yourself is your can your happiness be bought with money and if it can how do you change when you have money and you're happy how does your decision making change are you more or less likely to spend it on certain things because you're happy um is just holding on to it enough to make you happy is that happiness satisfactory enough to the point where you don't think to grow it or invest it or take the next step with your money. And this may seem there's going to be this uh, audience is going to be split 50 50. There's 50% of you guys listening that y'all are going to say, I don't know what the hell you talking about. Um, I, I, I don't get that. And then there's going to be 50% of you that know exactly what I'm talking about. And so I wanted to, stretch this concept a little bit more and discuss the other things that we have in our lives that are tainted by our understanding or the way that it was taught to us. I feel like the elephant in the room is relationships, right? I'm going to drop this episode today. Today's Monday. Yeah, I'm going to drop it today. So it's still February. (laughs) And I, um, I feel like the elephant in the room is relationships, is love. Why can't I find love? Why can't I find a husband? Why can't I find a wife? Why can't I find someone to love me? Um, yeah, that's, that's a thing that we got to talk about. A lot of the reason why we struggle when it comes to intimate and emotional <clears throat> relationships is because of our understanding of what the intimacy means, what the emotions mean. What is your relationship with relationships? What is your relationship with having a man? What, it, what does that mean to you? How do you interpret that? What does that do for you? What, you want a girl. What does that do for you? Why is that important to you? All of these questions are going to help you understand what your relationship with relationships are. And I'll tell you that a lot of people, I can't quantify it, and I'm not throwing no shade. You hear me? I ain't throwing no, mm, 
This is I don't I'm not doing that on this podcast show. I'm not. But I got to keep it very real with you because we're not having the conversations we should be having. And that's why we're running in the cycles and circles that we're running in. A lot of people. The highlight of the relationship or dating is knowing that you have somebody in the world. Now, I'm not here to judge, but if you so happen to be in a place in your life where you feel like I need to have somebody because I feel alone in the world, right? And that's the catalyst for maintaining a relationship for you. If that's the reason why you stay, what are you going to do when you outgrow that and feel like, I'm not alone in the world and I don't need to have a security in my bed. What's going to happen when your life perspective changes? Or there are some of you who are chasing love or the idea of love because you didn't have love from the right people growing up. I know this is going to sting. Okay. And trust and believe I am one of those people. I've been there. Okay. I'm not speaking to y'all from a textbook at all. I'm telling you from experience, I've been there. And if you follow the podcast long enough, you've heard some of the old archives episodes where I talk about like how I woke up one day and realized that I was in this cycle of unhealthy, like emotional attachment kind of thing. It was weird, but that's, that's not today's episode, but I'm just saying some of y'all are, are are trying to fill a void. Y'all are trying to fill an emptiness from the love that you should have received from your parents or your grandparents. Or you may be trying to rewrite the script of love and intimacy because you've had a lot of experiences where your love and your intimacy were, was violated And so if our relationships with these things are transactional at best, then it's going to be really hard for us to keep hold on to and maintain and invest and grow and duplicate and build foundations out of relationships because we don't have the proper understanding that lends to that type of a growth. We don't have the proper understanding or the translation that lends to that type of an outcome. Our translate our translation of this concept is very limited to the particular transactions. I love you because of what you do for me. Right? So if you stop doing that, then my love changes, right? Or I love you When you're available, I love you while you're available, but when you're not available, that love changes. I love you as long as you're on my side and you co-sign me and you make me feel validated. But when you stop validating or you no longer agree with what I'm doing, my love changes for you. I love you as long as you comfort me and and make me feel uh, safe and protected in a way that I haven't felt before. And when you 
don't do that anymore. I know my feelings change for you. At least I know that at least 70% of y'all feel me on that one. And so when, when it, when it, when we are basing how we operate on these temporary circumstances, once we outgrow these circumstances, then the operation is up for question. There's a lot of question. Well, a concept that's being tossed around a lot or has been. It's not that big now this year, but I feel like 2019, 2021, 2022, the whole um, what do you bring to the table had y'all in a chokehold. That concept of what do you bring to the table had y'all in a chokehold. It really did. It really did. At this this part, I might be judging. I'm giving like a little bit of a side eye because we were spinning out of control with social media of people actually arguing and fighting of who is responsible for bringing what to whose table. And we were evaluating the worthiness of a partner based on what they had in terms of how they can contribute to the stability in my everyday life. That was where we were determining who we're going to marry. That was how we was determining who we're going to have sex with, which is crazy because that conversation can only be had by a person that is lacking. Listen, I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say that again. The conversation of what you bring to my table can only be had when my table is not full in the beginning. Only when my cup is not empty, only when my cup runneth over, will I then say, well, I really don't need what you got to the table. I got my own table. Right? And so what is your approach to relationships when you actually don't need anything? Just because you don't need anything, does that mean that you can't be in a relationship? Does that make you a person that is not functional in a relationship or not acceptable as a partner? There are some people that will say, yeah, Some people believe that in order for a healthy relationship to work, both people have to absolutely need each other. That's a belief. And again, if that's what you got going on and that's where you're at, if it works for you, it works for you. But if you or your partner get to the point where y'all don't need each other, the question will be, do you still choose each other? Because you never chose each other if you were only together because y'all needed each other. Right? When you're hungry, you need to eat. Um, let's 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 turn the heat down. Let's <laughs> let's turn the heat down. Y'all about to come for me. Tell me what y'all think about the new episode quality going on. Y'all know I've been experimenting with equipment and whatnot. Oh, remember I told y'all that the episodes are not going to be like 
edited at all. Like I'm not going to really edit. I kind of lied. I'm about to start doing that. But listen, listen to me. I'm not going to do the most. I'm going to do below the medium amount. Like what's not the least, but not medium. A tad bit. I'm going to do the tad bit amount. You know what I mean? Like a little sprinkle. Because when I do develop this um, intro, I know that I want the intro to fade into the episode. And in order to do that, I have to edit them as tracks. So it's going to be a little something, something. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's going to be. But I promise I'm not going to be just taking stuff out of the recording. What is said on on the on the recording is going to be said on the recording the editing that i'm doing is just to make it sound nice with the with the intro i want it to blend really nicely i want the levels to be nicely and my editing uh strategy for taking out the silence it's been real janky so i haven't really been able to use that so i probably will be manually going through the episodes and taking out the silence and stuff like that so but i as I get better at speaking, I'm, I kind of like having the silence there because it gives y'all the time to talk back to the to the phone or talk back to the speaker. Because I know y'all got something to say. I know y'all got something to say. Um. So yeah, <laughs> look out for that adjustment. I'll probably, I I would. I'm not. I'm, I don't know if I'm gonna do it on this episode. I really want to publish this episode today. So and I don't have the intro prepared yet. Um, so it's, it's probably not going to happen here, but just, it's going to happen eventually. So, yeah. So that was us talking about our relationship with relationships. Same thing with like some people have a similar relationship with food. Some people eat because they're feeling something. Some people eat because they're anxious. Some people eat because they want to go to sleep. We have to really... Like, okay, we have to actually be really mindful of the way that we, we're going to always handle stuff based on our understanding of what is its purpose. And I don't, I feel like I just said something super abstract and it sounds crazy, but everything has a purpose or at least our understanding of everything is that it has a purpose and it's not as simple as saying that chair is there and it's to be sat on maybe the chair may have been built to be sat on but were you taught to use it in that way think about kids if kids see a chair what are they gonna do I'm talking about little kids. I'm not talking about grown kids. I'm talking about little kids, like two, three, four. They're going to be climbing to them. That chair is not to be set on to them. That chair is a slide. It's a building. It's um fire. It could be lava. Remember the floor is lava, y'all? I know, well, some of y'all don't remember the floor is lava. If you don't remember the floor is lava, we was little and we were just jumping all over the damn furniture because we were convinced that if you touch the floor, you're going to burn alive. I don't know where we get this universal concept from, but it kept our ass in them damn. <laughs> I tell you one thing, we did not not near toe touch that floor. Um, but so the purpose of 
these objects and these things depend on it really varies based on your understanding of it and so if i am a toddler and i'm just using a chair like a monkey bar do you think that if i'm treating that chair like that all the time do you think that that chair is going to last very long absolutely not eventually i'm going to break the chair or i'm at least going to wear it down nothing in my mind is going to think to restore the chair protect the chair clean that nothing will there's none in my mind that will have me thinking to do that as a as a four-year-old you know um and so it's not as simple to say that the chair is to be sat on because I have not been introduced to using the chair in that way so it's not as simple as to say that a husband is to blank or a wife is to blank because it really depends on how you've been taught to use a husband, how you've been taught to use a wife, how you've been taught to use food, how you've been taught to use money, how you've been taught to use sex. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, uh, yep. I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. How you've been taught to use your body, how you've been taught to use your words, how you've been taught to how you've been taught to use these things and one of the hardest parts about having to 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 do therapy is that a lot of the times we are not even consciously aware of our relationship with these things because we're taught the relationship at such a young age we've just always known it to be this thing it never dawned on us that it could possibly be something else or that there was something wrong with our relationship with this thing my mother, right, my mother worked multiple jobs all her life. When I tell you all her life, she worked multiple jobs all her life. She was the hardest working person I ever knew in my life. And so as long as I've known all the way up until high school, I've always imagined myself being a hardworking person. Now, now listen to what I'm, I'm not saying, having a good work ethic. I've envisioned myself working tirelessly, coming home exhausted, working 15 hours a day. That was something that I actually aspired to because I admired that quality in my mother and I wanted to live up to that. So to me, that was an honorable quality. That was admirable. That was what it meant to really be an adult, to really be independent, to slave yourself and to work. Make sure that you work an extra overtime. Don't take a job where overtime is not available. And and overtime was my mother's middle name. Like she always worked over. I promise you, I knew what overtime was before I knew what getting a job was. That word overtime was very normal in my house. Like it was so reg, it was a regular part of our vocabulary because we knew that mommy was always working overtime. I knew what overtime, I knew the word overtime before I even knew what overtime meant. I didn't know what, what it meant. I didn't understand the concept of a job, but I knew the term overtime. So That was always some, and she was excited to work overtime. So I was like, I want to work overtime. I'm going to get excited too. And she would talk about how she makes time and a half and she makes double time and she makes extra money and blah, blah, blah. And to me, financial gain and financial literacy was about how 
many different ways can you earn the money through hard work? Uh, financial literacy to me was overtime. And that was the 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 golden ticket. <laughs> you know, as as it was taught to me, overtime fixes all your problems. It makes you happy, it gives you money. Like that's all you need. I didn't think I needed to go or I actually didn't want to go to college. I had no goals after high school. I knew I had to graduate high school. But um, beyond that, I didn't have any expectations. I was never thinking about a career. Um, None of that was normal. (laughs) I just was like, I'm going to be like my mother. I'm going to grow up. I actually had it in my head that I was going to be a single father and I was going to work mad overtime. And that's just that was going to be like the highlight of my life. I was, that's what I wanted for myself. Um, so I, I share that with you to, to, to show you that some things we've been taught, we don't even realize that we've been conditioned to treat, treat it in this way. I didn't realize that that was a problem until after high school, <laughs> like until I actually started like getting a job, you know, and I was like, I want free time, you know, but, um, at that time, but you know, this is post high school. I, I didn't set up my life to have like goals and careers and college. I didn't, I didn't set up my life for none of that because I never wanted any of it. I thought that overtime was life. I thought it was everything. Um, and then I realized, you know, eventually, no, 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 that's not it. I mean, don't get me wrong. When you, I started working when I was, Ooh, I think 17. Yeah, I think I started working when I was 17. So I was excited to have any little bit of money in my pocket. And then after school and I was just working like full shifts and shit, I was hype as hell. Mind you, spending every dime on that, every penny of it, <laughs> spending every penny of it because the spending was the celebration of my hard work. Um, And so that was my introduction in, into money that was my introduction into worthiness. And so as that transpired after my mother died, spending money became a way to kind of, it was my way of keeping her alive in a weird way. Like I remember I would spend my money on stuff and I would say, Oh, my mother, if she was alive, she would want me to have this. Or I would buy something that I wanted, but I would get it in the color that she would buy. So my way of kind of coping with her death and connecting with her memory was spending money and convincing myself that this is what she would have wanted for me. Um, and then on the flip side of that, there was this this issue with change. And this is where we get into, um, I think this is, not, I don't want to say your relationship with yourself, but how you think about the relationship with yourself. What is your relationship with your relationship with yourself? Oh, this is getting deep. <laughs> this is getting deep. So uh, the, the second half of that, well, I don't want to say half, but another part of that grieving process is she died when I was 19. So really young and I basically had just started working and so that was still fresh in my mind. But um I had also just started to become quote unquote independent. I had finally started 
becoming that person. Um, I got myself an apartment. I had actually moved out when I was eh, 19. Yeah, I moved out when I was 19. Actually, when I was 18, a little bit after my, well, 18, 19, something like that. But I had just moved out. I had just got like a real nice job that wasn't in retail. Um, I had got myself in school part time or whatever. You know, I was just blowing money ridiculously, but I was the identity that I thought my mother would be proud of. So when she died, like before I got to even be full blown that person, I was committed to being as she would have remembered me. So I was not comfortable with doing anything differently. Every single step in my life was preceded by the thought, would my mother want me to do this? Or would, if she was alive, would she recognize me for doing this? Um, and so my relationship with myself was taught to me to be seen through the eyes of my mother. The way the, way the mirror that I look at myself was painted with my mother's face on it. I could not see myself because I was taught to only look at myself the way that my mother would look at me. And that that definitely became more bright-lined in her death, but in growing up, that was a big part of, you know, that was a big part of that was a big part of it too. My responsibilities and things as a child growing up were not very much, they weren't normal to what any kid my age would have to do, but it was something that my mother wanted me to do, and that was where I got that praise and approval, by doing that. So I started valuing myself based on the the um, predetermination of how she is going to value me. And when it came to going to school, I went to school for stuff that I didn't really care about, but I thought she would want me to do that. Um, every, everything, everything. And I'll tell y'all everything, like so many small decisions. Like I remember when I bought my first uh, professional camera, I actually made sure to purchase a brand that I thought my mother would like. And it had to have been something like a brand of camera that I saw her have. Um, I think it was, I bought a Sony camera. Yeah, my first DSLR, was it? No, probably, I don't know. But my mother was really big in photography. She was huge, well, she wasn't a big photographer, but she loved taking pictures and she collected a ton of pictures. Like she was always snapping pictures everywhere she went of everything and everybody. And she was printing those pictures and saving them. So, um, but what I needed the camera for, I had just started. Well, I hadn't just started, but I was like, I would say about a, a year in to modeling. Um, and I started learning about Photoshop and photography and perspective and things. And I started really liking that aspect of things. So I needed a camera both for my own personal portfolio, but also I wanted to start, you know, doing other things with just creatively, just expanding. And so the camera that I bought, I knew I shouldn't have bought that camera. It was way too expensive and it didn't have the features I needed. But because I thought that my mother would have 
preferred that camera. Like I, I thought about if she was here right now, she would pick this camera over that camera. And so that's the camera that I went. That's the camera that I went with, which then translated into what I was able to do with the camera because it had limitations. And I chose this camera with this limitations because this is what my mother probably would have chose. And so that there were certain things that I couldn't do with the camera <laughs> at the time. Cameras were not equipped with video like that. So some camera had amazing video and some cameras had really crappy video, even the DSLR cameras. Um, and so I went down this path of learning a lot about photography and photographs and editing and stuff like that. But I didn't go this path of video, which is what I really was more excited about learning about cinematic video and stuff like that. And so now we're looking at let's say five to six years later, I know so much about still digital imaging and so little about video and videography. So there are certain things that I just can't do when it comes to marketing myself. I can't practice. I, I didn't give myself practice as a videographer. I don't know how to edit video and I don't, well, at the time, I know how to do those things now, but back then when I could have you know, maybe let's say been making money or just experimenting with my art in that way, I kind of stopped myself from doing that. And I had plenty of opportunities to get the proper camera. I just chose to stick with this one because this is what I thought my mother would have done. Now, I don't want to discount that some of this was, a lot of this was grieving. This was a grieving process. And for those of you who are in the grieving process, understand that you have to take time with yourself and be forgiving of yourself. I don't hold any of this against myself. I don't, I don't feel like, damn, I, I was, I, I wished I would have did different. That's not where I'm at. At the end of the day, my life decisions have brought me to a point in my life today where I'm really happy with myself. I love myself. I love what I do and I love the impact that I make. So I'm good. But what I'm saying is that I probably would have had a totally different journey with different experiences if I enabled myself to see myself without the lens of my mother. If I'm constantly looking at myself through a blue filtered lens, I'm going to look blue. I'm never going to see myself from my true color. So when, when we think about our relationship with stuff, we have to think about when and where it was taught to us in the first place. Where was that concept introduced to you for the first time? And this is why therapy is so important, y'all. Please, please, please. If you ain't doing therapy with me, go get you a therapist. Do something. Therapy is so important because I'm now in my 30s. And it wasn't until my late 20s that I had to start unlearning all of these filters that I had on my life about concepts that were taught to me in an unhealthy way, which translated into me having an unhealthy relationship with these things, you know, and I had to unlearn all of that. And it took time and it took emotions and it took vulnerability. It took fears, tears, anger. It, it, it takes a lot out of you. But you eventually arrive at this place where you're looking at life at the f for the first time without any filters on. 
and you're like, wow, this is this is so dope. This is so beautiful. I am such a beautiful person. Um, but that this is why therapy is really important. This is why you got to go ahead and, you know, y'all got to y'all got to take care of yourselves. But to just to wrap things up, our relationship with these things start often at a very young age. And if you are in if you're a person in your life that you're constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop or you feel like things come in your life and they just are taken from you or they don't stay. You have to ask yourself, what is my relationship with this thing? Do I have a relationship with my job that reflects me keeping my job? Do I have a relationship with my bank account that reflects me keeping money? And that's only if that's what you want to do. Everybody don't want to keep money. And that's not for everybody. But whatever your end goal is, make sure that your relationship with your tools are conducive to that goal. If it's not, then you need to adjust the relationship. So thank you. Oh, this. Oh, I'm looking at the time, y'all. I gave y'all a earful. <laughs> this. Um. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you guys for being here with me and holding space. Make sure that you give the podcast a five star rating. Um, that helps a lot. If you're listening to this on um our free platforms like we have i know i have this on youtube there may be some episodes that might not be published there so you will have to eventually jump onto a podcast streaming app platform but we are available on iHeartRadio, google Podcasts, apple Podcasts. all of these are free platforms uh stitcher uh <sighs> everywhere and if there's a place that it's not available and you want it available just let me know and i will make it available there i know that there are so many different platforms out there for podcasts so i just want to make sure that i'm available to everybody um yeah also make sure that you share this podcast with somebody that you care about you never know who this could help um again as i've said before oftentimes i get dms from random people just telling me how like you know, this, uh, an episode, something that I said resonated with them and really just changed their life. People that I've never met, maybe it's someone that you guys might know or someone that they know, you know, I just like the fact that we have a community that are just a few degrees of separation because it shows you that we all kind of share space with each other. So please go ahead and share this with someone. You never know how it might change and impact their life. Um, and yeah, that's what I got for y'all today. I've been your mental health coach for the day and I will catch y'all in the next session. Peace.